In the year 1985, in the district of Spitalfields in the East End of London, an ambitious archaeological project was underway. The project aimed to uncover the buried crypt of the Christchurch with All Saints, the iconic East London church whose white needle spire rises over the rooftops of Brick Lane and Spitalfield Market. This would be the first post-medieval burial vault to ever be comprehensively excavated by archaeologists, and the team was filled with anticipation about what they would find. The crypt held the remains of an unprecedented cross-section of British society, offering untold insights into the lives and the deaths of the people of London during one of its most turbulent centuries. And most tantalisingly of all, nearly 400 of the bodies could be identified and named, thanks to the coffin breastplates and inscriptions left on their remains. It was incredibly gruelling work. The team, made up mostly of women, spent more than a year working in the dark and dank vaults of the old church. They spent their days cramped in small spaces, surrounded by the decaying remains of hundreds of corpses, more than 200 years old. And all of this soon began to take a toll on the excavators. Six of the 12 long-term members of the team terminated their contracts early, while five others found they could only work for short periods of time. If you were a junior archaeologist in Britain, this was one of the toughest jobs you could imagine. Subsequent analysis has suggested that some team members did ultimately show signs of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And it wasn't only the dark, the damp, and the constant presence of death that made the work so hard. The team was well aware that the very thing that had caused the deaths of so many of those 18th and 19th century people could still be lurking down there and the dark vaults of the church. An ancient monster lying in wait for them as they worked. Through those dark months in the church crypt, that team of archaeologists felt something that people in England hadn't felt for a generation, but that the people decaying in the coffins around them would have felt on an almost daily basis. That is, the paralysing fear of smallpox. I'm Annie Kelly, and this is Vaccine. This is the story of a campaign against disease, how it was planned and organized, and how the people responded to it. The last battle is being fought now against a terrifying disease for which there is no cure. The means of preventing it, immunization. The world and all its peoples have won freedom. A disease which causes terrible suffering and blindness and which scars for life every person who survives it. The only human disease to be eradicated globally. The greatest public health triumph in history. But let's start from the beginning. We can only imagine how frightening it must have been for the archaeologists digging in the crypt of the Spitalfields Christchurch. The tomb was dark and cool, and it had been sealed airtight. 
No one knew how long a particle of smallpox could remain contagious in those conditions. Lurking in every decaying skeleton, in the mummified remains and tattered funeral clothing, dormant microbes could lie in wait for living human flesh to infect. The team had spent over a year in consultation with health authorities before beginning the dig, and they used strict medical precautions throughout their work. While they dug, they wore face masks and gloves at all times, adding to the already difficult working conditions. In the end, about 10% of the bodies buried in the crypt were found to bear the marks of smallpox, but they were ruled not to pose a biohazardous threat. Still, the excavators could take no chances. Much of the human material uncovered in the crypt had to be burned, a precaution that for many of the excavators seemed to go against their very principles as archaeologists, and even their sense of human decency. As the Cambridge archaeologist Mary Baxter recalls, The mummified tissue was autopsied and cremated, along with an amount of other mummified tissue while the bones were recovered and put with the rest of the skeleton for research purposes. This partition of an individual distressed some of the excavators, who were reassured by the local clergy that God would fit individual 2287 back together when necessary, and that there was more of 2287 surviving than, say, an atom blast victim, and they were not barred from the afterlife. This story is so fascinating, because it feels like, for just a moment, a window had opened from modern London to the London of the 17 and 1800s. Today, it's so difficult for many of us to imagine what it must have felt like to have lived in a time when the gaunt spectre of smallpox stalked the city streets. And it's this historical emotion, this forgotten terror, that this episode of Vaccine is going to explore. A large part of what distinguishes us from our ancestors is our different attitude to disease. Today, we see illness as something to be fixed, and if possible, we try to prevent it in advance with vaccines and quarantines, along with public health measures like social distancing and the wearing of face masks. But this is not how most of humanity has experienced contagious diseases. Smallpox, for much of history, was just another part of human life in Asia, Europe, and parts of Africa. A constant presence in our streets and houses. I want to try to understand how this ever-present danger of disease shaped people's understanding of life and of death. As in so many of these kinds of discussions, there was one overriding factor in who got the disease and when, and that was class and social position. For most people in Europe and Asia in the 17th and 18th centuries, smallpox was caught in childhood. Most people who lived in cities and large towns lived in close quarters with others, sharing spaces with other families working in crowded workshops and travelling along busy streets with little sanitation. This naturally created the perfect conditions for smallpox to spread. In fact, among the urban working classes, 
Smallpox was so common that by a certain age, virtually all living adults would have already survived it and become immune. As the writer Gilbert Blanc observed at the end of the 18th century, An adult person who had not had smallpox was scarcely met with or heard of in the United Kingdom. Since smallpox killed around a third of its victims, we can imagine this disease as a game of Russian roulette, played with a six-chamber revolver, with bullets in a third of its chambers. The whole of humanity was playing this game, and all of them could hear the sound of the gun going around. Click, click, bang. Click, click, bang. We can only imagine the terrifying psychological toll this disease exacted, as the historian T.B. Macaulay writes. The smallpox was always present, filling the churchyard with corpses, tormenting with constant fears all whom it had stricken, leaving on those whose lives it spared the hideous traces of its power, turning the babe into a changeling at which the mother shuddered, and making the eyes and cheeks of the big-hearted maiden objects of horror to the lover. One outbreak in Naples in the year 1544 is recalled in the following Italian chronicle. Few children who had smallpox escaped, and there were five or six thousand dead children, with many other deaths among adults. For the upper and ruling classes, for royals and their courtiers, the reality was a little different. They were usually separated from close contact with the urban masses, and so they would often not contract the disease in childhood. For this reason, smallpox would often strike them later in life. This proved to be immensely disruptive for the ruling classes of Europe. Losing a child is a tragedy, but once an aristocrat became an adult, they would have responsibilities in the job of running their estate. They might even be the ruler of the country, and their sudden death due to smallpox would have wide-ranging consequences. In the 18th century alone, no fewer than five kings and queens of Europe were struck down by the disease during their reigns. One emperor and two empresses of Austria, six archdukes and archduchesses, an elector of Saxony, an elector of Bohemia, a dauphin and a king of France, a king of Sweden and a Tsar of Russia were all numbered among its victims. In the 16th century, one of England's most renowned rulers came down with the disease. That was the 29-year-old queen, Elizabeth I. On the 10th of October, 1562, Elizabeth was taken ill at Hampton Court Palace with what was thought to be a bad cold. But the cold soon developed into a violent fever, and soon the red pock marks that are the hallmark of smallpox began to appear over her body. Just seven days later, it was feared that the Queen would die. But Elizabeth was one of the two-thirds of people who survived after catching the disease. She was nursed back to health by her lady-in-waiting, Lady Mary Sidney, who then fell ill herself. 
Mary also survived, but both women were left tragically scarred. Lady Mary Sidney's husband would later go on to write the following lament about his wife's suffering. I left her a full, fair lady, in mine eyes at least the fairest, and when I returned I found her as foul a lady as the smallpox could make her, the scars of which, to her resolute discomfort, ever since have remained on her face. So she lives in solitude, like a night raven in her house. Today, when we see portraits of Queen Elizabeth, we recognise her distinctive appearance. We know that famous ivory-white makeup plastering her face like whitewash on a wall, and we often assume that this was a fashion choice, a peculiarity of the times. But this was not entirely the case. The thick white makeup was designed to cover the disfigurement that smallpox had left on the face of the young queen, and her case was far from unique. For those who survived it, smallpox disfiguration was one of the cruelest aspects of the disease. It left its victims forever marked, a constant reminder that they had been touched by the illness. Scarring left by smallpox was so commonplace that one wanted poster for an accused counterfeiter, printed in the year 1688, included in its description of the culprit a distinctive feature of his face that all onlookers would have noticed. That is, that he was without potholes. His face was free of smallpox scars. But scarring was not the only lasting gift that smallpox could leave patients with. Many accounts of experiencing smallpox discuss being temporarily made blind, usually from the pustules and discharges preventing the eyelids from opening. But permanent blindness was a frequent enough after-effect of the disease. From what records we have from before the disease's eradication, smallpox was the cause of more than a third of blindness in Europe. In the COVID-19 crisis, it feels as if we've all become intimately familiar with how a virus travels from one person to the next. We've become fluent in talking about aerosol transmission and surface transmission, R rates and social distancing. But in the past, people conceptualized the movement of a disease through the population in a variety of different ways. The Persian scholar Abu Bakr Muhammad ibn Zakaria al-Razi was one of the great physicians of the medieval Islamic Golden Age. He was born in the year 854, in the city of Ray, perched on the southern slopes of the Alborz mountain near modern Tehran. This was an important stop on the great trading route known as the Silk Road, which brought goods and knowledge to Europe from as far as China. Later, he travelled to the intellectual centre of Baghdad, a city of libraries and learning, and rose to become the chief physician of its hospitals, writing over 200 books on logic, astronomy, language and medicine. While treating patients in Baghdad, Al-Razi pioneered the practice of experimental, evidence-based medicine, 
and wrote one of the earliest known manuscripts distinguishing the difference between smallpox and measles in the 9th century. His book, A Treatise on the Smallpox and Measles, contains the following description of the disease. The eruption of the smallpox is preceded by a continued fever, pain in the back, itching in the nose, and terrors in the sleep, a fullness of the face which at times goes and comes, an inflamed colour, vehement redness in both the cheeks, redness of both of the eyes, heaviness of the whole body. When you see these symptoms, then you may be assured that the eruption in the patient is nigh at hand. His writing reveals that even at this early point, smallpox was already completely endemic in Southwest Asia. So much so that Al-Razi theorised smallpox as quite simply a natural and inevitable stage of childhood, a maturing of the blood as a young person grew into an adult. Smallpox arises when the blood putrefies and ferments so that the superfluous vapours are thrown out of it, and it is changed from the blood of infants, which is like crushed grapes, into the blood of young men, which is like wine perfectly ripened. The smallpox itself may be compared to the fermentation, and the hissing noise which takes place is the grapes at that time. And this is the reason why children rarely escape being seized with this disease. But it seems that Al-Razi did recommend isolation for smallpox patients, explicitly warning that if this wasn't followed, then the disease could spread. He was drawing on emerging ideas about contagionism, or the ability of disease to spread from body to body, instead of through the air. But despite such warnings from physicians, quarantine could rarely be used effectively. Part of the problem was the character of the smallpox virus itself. The incubation period of a disease refers to the time that it takes after an infection for the first sign of symptoms to show. And in smallpox, this period was long, approximately 10 to 14 days. This meant that an infected person could walk around for two weeks before any warning would appear, spreading the disease to anyone they encountered along the way. And although he was on the right track, Al-Razi's explanation was just one of many competing beliefs about smallpox, at a time when few could read or write, and access to physicians who may have heard of him was expensive. Since the disease was so common, and most people alive had already survived it, its transmission often seemed like a much more complex affair than it was. Physicians couldn't understand why it seemed to affect some people and not others, and this created a great deal of confusion. And even if someone had heard of Al-Razi's theories and wanted to try them out, it was exceptionally difficult to do so. Isolating a patient would have required, at the very least, a separate bedroom in a time when most families shared one cramped room. All of these factors combined to make smallpox virulently easy to spread across nations, as they traded and settled across land and sea. But while smallpox ravaged the cities of Europe, Asia and Africa, there was one enormous human population, 
that remained completely untouched by the disease. It was a population of perhaps 60 million people, which represented an untapped ocean of victims. These people were both completely unaware of and completely defenceless against the threat that smallpox posed. This was the population of the Americas. Since the end of the last ice age and the separation of North and South America from the Afro-Eurasian landmass, the populations of what we call the Old World and the New World had virtually no contact with each other. While citizens of the Old World lived out the daily nightmare of endemic smallpox infection, the peoples of the New World lived free of its tyranny. But that meant they had also developed no natural immunity to the disease. In the Old World, people lived every day with smallpox. They knew it would take a third of all their children, like some horrendous fairy tale monster. But for the New World in the Americas, its adult population was just as vulnerable. And with the age of discovery and the development of the ocean-going ship, the two sides of the world would meet once again. And on those ships, Europeans would be accompanied by that invisible and deadly traveller. Smallpox arrived in the so-called New World with the very first colonial expeditions. And for the people who lived in the Americas, its arrival would be an extinction-level event. In April 1520, a Spanish expedition landed in what is now Veracruz, Mexico, and at least one of their number was infected with smallpox. A Spanish Franciscan friar, writing in 1541, spoke of the horrifying effect the disease had on the native Aztec or Mexica people. They died in heaps, like bedbugs. Many others died of starvation, because as they were all taken sick at once, they could not care for each other, nor was there anyone to give them bread or anything else. In many places it happened that everyone in a house died, and as it was impossible to bury the great number of dead, they pulled down the houses over them in order to check the stench that rose from the dead bodies so that their homes became their tombs. There is no doubt that the rapid spread of the disease enabled a relatively small Spanish force to overwhelm the city of Tenochtitlan in 1521, having already presided over the death of the Aztec ruler Moctezuma. Aztec sources, writing in the years following the invasion, recall the disease spreading through the population even in advance of the Spanish soldiers, critically weakening their society and destroying any chance to resist the European invaders. Before the Spaniards appeared to us, first an epidemic broke out, a sickness of pustules. Large bumps spread on people, some were entirely covered. They spread everywhere, on the face, the head, the chest, the disease brought great desolation, a great many died of it. They could no longer walk about, but lay in their dwellings and sleeping places, no longer able to move or stir. 
The writer Francisco Hernandez Arana, a member of the Mayan Cachacal people, wrote this haunting history of the combined forces of disease and warfare that the Spanish brought to his people. Great was the stench of the dead. After our fathers and grandfathers succumbed, half the people fled to the fields. The dogs and vultures devoured the bodies. The mortality was terrible. Your grandfathers died, and with them the sons of kings and their brothers and king's men. So it was that we became orphans, O oh my sons. So we became when we were young. All of us were thus. We were born to die. In places where smallpox was still new, it had the potential to disintegrate entire societies. In South America, the Inca king Huayna Capac died of smallpox as it spread south, long before any Europeans even set foot in Peru. His death unleashed a civil war that tore the empire apart, and major capitals like Cusco were ravaged by the disease. Mortality across the entire population of the Americas is thought to have reached up to 90%, or more than 50 million people. It was an event as deadly as the Second World War, at a time when the world population was only an estimated 350 million people. This means that roughly one-seventh of all the people on Earth were killed. While smallpox had been a slow, simmering dread in the cities of Europe, in uncontacted societies, it was a boiling terror. Fear of the disease often unleashed violent forces in these societies, and perhaps the most chilling fact of all is that European colonial forces were aware of this and did their very best to exploit it. Pontiac was a war chief of the Ottawa indigenous people in what is now known as the Northeastern United States. In May 1763, he led a surprise assault on Fort Detroit, a British military outpost. Inspired by his courage, warriors from the various other tribes, such as the Delaware, Shawnee, and Mingo peoples, took up arms and laid siege to Fort Pitt. The fort's commander, Captain Simeon Ecuye, relayed the desperate situation to his superior. Philadelphia-based Colonel Henry Bouquet. We are so crowded in the fort that I fear disease. For in spite of all of my care, I cannot keep the place as clean as I should like. Moreover, the smallpox is among us. For this reason, I have had a hospital built under the bridge, beyond musket fire. Colonel Bouquet, in turn, passed the news about the smallpox inside Fort Pitt to his own superior, General Geoffrey Amherst. Amherst, responding, suggested using the outbreak as a weapon against the native forces. Could it not be contrived to send the smallpox among those disaffected tribes of Indians? We must, on this occasion, use every stratagem in our power to reduce them. Unbeknownst to Amherst and Bouquet, it seems that somebody in Fort Pitt, besieged now for days on end, had had the same idea. We know this through the surviving diary of William Trent, a trader who along with many other colonists had taken refuge in the fort 
at the first signs of rebellion. Trent describes a meeting between Fort Pitt officials and two Delaware dignitaries, Turtles Hart and Mamalti, where the Delawares urged the British to abandon the fort. Trent records that the two sides failed to reach an accord, but mentions something striking. Out of our regard to them, we gave them two blankets and a handkerchief out of the smallpox hospital. I hope it will have the desired effect. From then on, we don't know what happened, or whether the poison materials actually managed to infect the Delaware soldiers. Modern-day scientists who have looked at the case have said that material-to-human contact was an unlikely, but not impossible, form of transmission. We do know, however, that either deliberately or coincidentally, the indigenous populations around Fort Pitt in the spring and summer of the same year suffered a terrible outbreak of the disease. Whether connected or not, the Fort Pitt incident serves as horrifying proof that British forces were undeniably aware of the asymmetric impact smallpox had on the colonial project in America and were prepared to exploit that fact if necessary. One of the reasons that smallpox was considered so viable as a biological weapon, ongoing right up to World War II when British, American, Japanese and Soviet armies all investigated its possible military use, was that there was no cure. To this day, there remains no option for a smallpox patient but to make them comfortable and hope that they survive. But physicians and doctors throughout history have tried different therapies to ease the suffering and severity of each case. That 9th century scholar Al-Razi, working in Baghdad, recommended the following treatment for the disease. Let the patient put on a double shirt with the upper border closely buttoned, and underneath let there be placed two small basins of boiling water, one before and the other behind him, so the vapor may come to the whole body except the face, and the skin may be rarefied and disposed to receive and evaporate the superfluous humors. Al-Razi's theory that smallpox was simply a natural stage of human development had been the presiding theory for centuries, and his cooling method of treatment would be used well into the Renaissance and early modern period. At the time when Queen Elizabeth fell to the disease, physicians still believed that pustules were erupting on her skin as a result of the blood running too hot. No doubt this would have been inspired by the fever that always accompanied the disease, and its victims often describing how their skin felt like it was on fire. Thomas Dover, the English physician born in 1660, wrote of his own smallpox being cured with what is known as the cooling method. Whilst I lived in Dr. Sydenham's house, I had myself the smallpox and fell ill on the twelfth day. In the beginning, I lost 22 ounces of blood from bloodletting. He gave me a vomit, but I find my experience purging much better. I went abroad by his direction until I was blind, and then took to my bed. I had no fire allowed in my room, 
My windows were constantly open, my bedclothes were ordered to be laid no higher than my waist. He made me take twelve bottles of small beer, acidulated with spirit of vitriol, every twenty-four hours. I had this anomalous kind of smallpox to a very great degree, yet never lost my senses one moment. The cooling method clashed with another school of medicine, known as the Red Treatment. In cultures and religions where the disease is conceptualized as a demon, they are frequently said to be afraid of the color red. So, naturally, one would chase the disease away with as much red material around the patient as possible. Smallpox patients would be dressed in red clothes, wrapped in red blankets, and placed by an open fire. Not only was this therapy religious, though, it also had a rationale based on the medieval idea if the human body having four humours, which had to remain in constant balance. In combining the colour red with traditional humoral therapies like bloodletting and leeches, the red treatment would essentially speed up the blood heating process and cause the disease to pass as quickly as possible. But gradually, medical thought began to adjust to a new theory. Physicians were increasingly noticing that the poor, and people living in cramped, overcrowded conditions, developed more diseases than the rich. And they theorised that many of these diseases were caused by smells and bad emanations caused by living near sewage. These bad emanations became known as miasmas, and the theory persisted well into the 19th century. The physician, Neil R. Knott, was one proponent of this theory and delivered the following address to the Royal Commission. The immediate and chief cause of many of the diseases which impair the bodily and mental health of the people and bring a considerable proportion prematurely to the grave is the poison of atmospheric impurity arising from the accumulation in and around their dwellings of the decomposing remnants of the substances used for food and from the impurities given out from their own bodies. In 1793, a man named John Haygarth, a physician from Chester, had proposed a radical alternative theory. He published a book containing his rules for smallpox prevention and inside he proposed that smallpox was neither an inevitable stage of development inherent to the human body, nor a result of miasma or bad air. In his book, he proposed a list of prevention techniques that still resonate with our advice for viruses today, as the following extract shows. Mankind are not necessarily subject to the smallpox. It is always caught by infection from a patient in the distemper or poisonous matter or scabs that come from a patient and may be avoided by observing these. 1. Suffer no person who has not had the smallpox to come into the infectious house, no visitor who has any communication with persons liable to the distemper should touch or sit down on anything infectious. 2. No patient after the pox have appeared must be suffered to go into the street or other frequented place. 3. The utmost attention to cleanliness is absolutely necessary. 
During and after the distemper, no person, clothes, food, furniture, cat, dog, money, medicines, or any other thing that is known or suspected to be bedaubed with matter, spittle, or other infectious discharges of the patient should go out of the house until they have been washed. When a patient dies of smallpox, particular care should be taken that nothing infectious be taken out of the house so as to do mischief. Just as with Al-Razi, centuries ago in Persia, Haygarth had noticed that isolation and strict hygiene could prevent the spread of the disease. This was radical enough on its own, but his writing also points to the influence of another, much more controversial theory. A theory which had become the source of major debate over the course of Haygarth's life. Hagarth had connected the spread of smallpox to what he called the poisonous matter emanating from scabs and pustules produced by the disease. He was alluding to a belief that had been practiced in many Asian and African countries for centuries, often by people we would think of as magicians and faith healers. It was a practice believed to be nothing more than folk magic a superstition of the simple and unenlightened population of the East. One that less than a century earlier, it was thought that no self-respecting English doctor would even consider, and which would be fiercely fought by many of the most powerful voices in medicine. This practice was known as inoculation, and it would send shockwaves and reverberations right around the world change how Europeans thought about disease forever, and alter the very course of human history. You've been listening to Vaccine. I'd like to thank my voice actors, Doug MacDonald, Peter Walters, Lachlan Lucas, Darren Oliver, Jake Barrett-Mills, Paul Cooper, and Ree Brignall. This series wouldn't be possible without the hard work of our academic team. Dr. Agnes Arnold Forster, our researcher, Kristen Brigortiz from John Hopkins University, our academic editor, and Dr. Gareth Millwood at the University of Birmingham, who acted as a special consultant. Vaccine is an independent show, and we prefer not to disrupt our podcast with advertising and sponsorship. It can only survive with the generous support of our listeners. If you enjoyed Vaccine, please consider heading to www.patreon.com forward slash vaccine podcast to contribute something and support the production of more quality historical programming. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can find us at Vaccine Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube, where we will be sharing video accompaniments to each episode. Patreon subscribers will get early access and we'll be able to watch without ads. For now, goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>